0: Well, I want to thank uh, Bill and Debbie, uh, wonderful uh, friends of mine, uh, Chris and Danielle, uh, David and Christine, and I go back a long way. It's good to see uh, friendly faces like Anna's here, and um, James and Megan and DC. I've never seen Megan so confused as that picture. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read. To you from the book of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 12. We're just going to look at eight verses together. And uh, so here now, the reading of God's Word. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dim, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, where the golden bowl is broken, where the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God and gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the end of exams and the lightness that we feel. Father, here we are returning right from the finishing of exams to looking at something that comes to everyone. Death we do this? Father, show us the way. How these things come together, how it all comes together in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was uh, young, I had persistent dreams of leaving home. Uh, I loved the house that I grew up in. Uh, I didn't mind the town that I lived in. I was not abused. I was not mm-hmm. scarred by my upbringing. My parents loved me in their own way, but they did not love each other. They did not like each other. Uh, the home I grew up in, I, I guess I would describe it as a relational war zone. Well, I didn't know God. I heard about God. I sometimes was taken to church, went to Sunday school. I didn't know God, but I prayed for my parents to get. Divorce was the only thing that I could think of that would stop the the anger, stop the conflict, stop the shouting in our house. Um, I worked before I became a pastor. I worked for 15 years in, 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 in the communications business in television. I worked at, at ABC, and 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 my ways of escape back then actually fed. What I ultimately did in in, in my career, I I turned up the volume on the TV so I wouldn't hear my parents shouting. Uh, To sneak some laughter into my life, I had a sweet tooth for those situation comedies with those annoying, manipulative laugh tracks. (laughs) They were not annoying to me. They were not phony to me. I love that. I, 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 I imagined those sitcoms to be real. I imagined those sitcoms to be more like the homes of my friends than mine ones. They let me see into a world that I imagined all my friends living in. And then when I went to bed, uh, these are days long before smartphones and streaming, I had to find a way then to silence the anger and the arguments that it would go on into the night after my bedtime. And so I hid under the covers with what you would describe as prehistoric earbuds. (laughs) Listening to far-off radio stations uh, in other cities as a way of blocking out the noise, but also bringing into my life other worlds, other realities, so that I I would fantasize about being somewhere else. Because I hated that house. I wanted to leave it in the worst way, always trying to run from a place I could not leave. This is uh, so pitiful, but one year, I was 12 or 13 years old, I got my Boy Scout backpack out of my closet, I packed it with my stuff, I got on my bike, and I rode into the night, and I rode, and I rode, and I rode, until finally, my fear of where I was, I was lost, was worse than the anger that was back home, and I had to stop, knock on someone's door, and say, you need to call my parents. Running, really, with just no... Hope of peace. Now, my parents couldn't figure out why, at such a young age, I was—I was—I was i was 13 and said, so "I want to go into the television business." I couldn't figure out why, but I wanted to walk all the way through my fantasies um, into into a, an escape of reality. I, I wanted to go to Hollywood, work in New York. I wanted to work in the business that created the fantasies that were real to me. Now, I later did study communications, and I went off. Uh, a uh, finally, I decided New York is where I wanted to go. And the reason I, I decided New York over Hollywood is New York was a city my parents would never go into. <laughs> I, my, my, my parents were not city people. They, my, my parents would not, I mean, the tunnel was like a wall to them, right? They were not going to go into Manhattan. So, 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 so home and anger and divorce, all of that, when I, when I moved to New York, all of that was finally behind me. My father and his and his brooding rage, and my mother—the way she made me her confidant against his anger—and and, and all of that was behind me. And and I did, and I, I I got an internship at ABC, and it turned into a job. And then I I I, I worked in the uh, uh, sports radio business uh, first with the Yankees, and then with the Jets, and then I moved to worked in the television business, ABC. I was free. I was totally free. Or was I? See, I had made my life all about doing everything the opposite of my, of my parents, my father in particular. I was pretty happy, I thought, doing it that way. In fact, that's how I define happiness just don't be him, and would will be fine. And uh, I, I was completely conflict diverse. That, that's a goal, after all, when you, you know, were raised in the home, there was plenty of conflict. Um, but I was also in therapy for years I was in therapy my stated reason for being in therapy was a sort of a low grade depression but I didn't know why and uh, didn't know why I was depressed and all I didn't know was that my relationships just never worked out just one after another but the reality was that permanent relationships for me felt like these sort of atomic conflict colliders you know? mm-hmm. right? the longer I stay in one the more it got real the more like My home, it would likely be, that's when you start living real life with somebody. That's when conflict starts. And so I'd get in these relationships, and as soon as we got kind of close, I would blow it up. One after another. No conflict that way. No relationship fulfillment, but no conflict that way. So that around and around, I I, I chased momentary happiness in these relationships relationships that lasted uh, as long as those 30-minute sitcoms that I was so uh, drawn to, and by choosing a city my parents would never come to, and, and how I controlled the level of conflict about me, you would think that I felt like I was at home. Like I had made a home for myself. You know, the house that I grew up in is actually only 20 minutes from here. I used to come to Princeton as a kid quite a lot. And I have wanted to visit that house. I wanted to knock on the door, talk to the present owner, and say, so, you know, I, I lived here 40-some years ago. And uh, can I walk around? Because I want to hear the echoes, the arguments, see the place of the conflict. I suspect it was so small and it was so big in my life. I haven't been able to do it. Now, a question for myself is, why would I do that? Why would you want to go back to a place that you long so long to leave? In the meantime, those years in Manhattan, they represented everything to me. Uh, I saw incredible wealth in a way that you don't notice in the suburbs. I saw incredible poverty, having to, to walk past and over the homeless on my way to work. I saw extraordinary levels of personal power. I found myself at parties with our current president. Uh, I, I saw weakness personally and professionally, vulnerable people. But there seemed to be no destination for me. I, I looked for my, my destination in my career. I looked for destination in the arms of women. I looked for my, my destination in relative fame. Um, power and notoriety in the halls of my uh, area, you know, my, my profession that I traveled in, but my therapy bills made a lie of my pursuits in that year. I had no home. I moved to New York to make a home. I had no home. In fact, I realized, at one point in therapy, I realized, I hate myself. My, my, my parents, they Sad stuff that they had passion, they had their anger, they, they, they had deep marital disappointment. Yes, but they weren't empty like I was, they were full of anger. Person. I felt empty, and I chose a this. And I'm here, I'm in a city that offers everything that this world has to offer. Now, today, I look at those years as the secular version of. Solomon's life, the preacher's life here in Ecclesiastes. Solomon hurled himself into everything. It's a short book. He tried wisdom. He tried pleasures of every kind. He intoxicated himself with every kind of pleasure. He wrote books to work out his ideas. Like me, he even dove into psychology at one point. He says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know insanity and to know folly, but I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind." He went from one intoxication to another. He went from one devotion for his heart to another. He moved from one idol to another, trying to find his home, trying to find his identity. Now, Solomon has an advantage that we don't have. He's a king. They have all of this time, and they get to determine how to use their time. Kings don't have exam <laughs> They don't. right? They have, they have all of the resources of wealth, and no one else to tell them how to use it. They wake up and say, what will I do with all that I have? So this king, Solomon, is telling you that this side of heaven, he has made a systematic study with both all his time and all of his resources that exceed yours, exceed mine. So that you don't have to do what he did. And now he's telling you, here's what I did. I searched it all out. I I got the Princeton degree of my age. I got into the med school that everyone wants to get into. I got into the law school, the doctoral program, the postdoctoral programs. I got the job on Wall Street that everybody wants. I got the job after all of those programs that made all of those years of study pay off. I got the attractive and appropriate spouse. I got the children. I got the house. I got it all. And here's what he says about the years of his own youth. He basically says, Let me give you truth. Everything is but breath. You know how you go out this time of year? You go, you'll go you'll back back to your, 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 your room tonight and you'll step out in, in, into, the, into the night air and you'll see your breath for a moment and it'll be gone. That's what he says about this life. That's what he learned. It's fleeting, it's vapor. It's all been chasing after the wind. It's empty. Let me put it differently. He did all that, and then he wrote a book about it. He wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, about it. And essentially, he's titled it, How to Waste Your Life. And and his message, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the basic message is, nobody has wasted a life like I've wasted a life. I've wasted it the best. But there's a little counter melody in the biblical book. There's a growing sweetness that sneaks up on you. A little bit of sweetness under the bitterness. Now there is bitterness. You, you don't miss it here. It's all over this passage. All of these pictures of life decay. Now I know that, that, that these are archaic images that I read to you. But let me just explain a couple of them. Um, the, the, the part there about blinders, that's Bible speak for teeth so that there will come a time when the grinders don't grind because your teeth fall out. The windows in the passage uh, are our eyes. Your eyes dim over time. Doors in the passage, those are your ears. There comes a time in your life when your ears don't work as well. The almond tree that has white blossoms. thats talking about guys like me. When you get to my age, your hair starts to turn gray or white or like bills. <laughs> And the phrase, the phrase desire fails, that is exactly what you think it is. You know, those ads with the two people in the bathtubs? Right? We're pretty fond of that, by the way. That's what he's talking about. There comes a time when desire fails. And suddenly you're you know you're looking for those boxes in the drugstore. Like, where do you find that? I need it. Now, this is this is actually what I call the drugstore life, life illustrated by the, by the drugstore. When I was a kid, I loved going to the drugstore with my love. Why? Candy. <laughs> right? They had candy, like, and, and they always put it candy in the drugstore where a three-year-old can reach it, Because they know when you're a three-year-old, your mother's not going to buy it, but you might go, Mommy. <laughs> right? And she'll so, uh, so buy it. I love the drugstore. And then as time went on, you know, Years went, went on, then, then it was the toy cars, you could buy those at a drugstore too. And then a couple of years go by, and back the drugstores where I met Superman and, and Spider-Man and Batman at the comic books at the drugstore. I couldn't have cared less what my mother was buying. Razor blades, Deodorant, I didn't know those things existed. But then, but then this acne thing happened, and I had to find other idols in the drugstore now I have to stay away from the candy, and I need products and other aisles. And you know how this works out. You know, suddenly you're walking down an aisle you've never been before, and you're kind of lost, and that's when the person in the red smock at the CVS shows up and says, may I help you? <laughs> and when you get to be my age, you say, depends. Right? <laughs> Embarrassing. Or you suddenly find yourself in an aisle like Bill and I find ourselves in the same aisle and... We and I were doing one of these things. Like, can you read this? <laughs> <laughs> As the windows are dim. The point is, this world, there's darkness in this world. How real the Bible is. But the sweet counter melody is there, and the world is in decay, but our Creator has also set eternity in work. You still build, do you still have your leadership um, training down at Ocean City? Do you still do that? Ever, 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 it's down to the ocean. I don't know if this is how you feel that. For me, there's a strange dissonance when I'm on the beach because I'm looking at the ocean. There's this bittersweetness about it because you, you get that sense of the ocean's magnificence, its beauty, and its power. And I, I mean, I'm personally overwhelmed by the, the smell and the power, the sound of the crashing of the waves. But the longer that I stand there staring at it, as big as the ocean is, I can't feel the emptiness in your heart. It just doesn't do the job. It promises it. When I smell it, I'm walking out on the beach to the water. It promises that that I'm going to feel that power. But the longer I stand there, it just doesn't. This is why C.S. Lewis calls the earth the shadowlands. Doesn't it seem that way? If it doesn't yet, it will. And I want you to be prepared. The preacher, Solomon, uh, Koheleth, whatever you want to call him, he wants you to be prepared for this. If you make the stuff of this world all that there is, that job, your thesis, that relationship, You are going to come through this life thinking life is a booby trap. that it's rigged. It promises and it never delivers. And when that happens, the evil one gets, gets a hold of you and he uses it to crush you. But God uses that same moment to show you. Sometime in the middle of those years that I lived in Manhattan, um, I was walking down the street and uh, walking through Greenwich Village and a taxi cab comes the other way and out of the back of this cab comes this woman and I recognized her immediately. This was my college, if you'll pardon me, girlfriend from hell. (laughs) And here she was. She's coming at me and I start to stiffen and she says, she puts her arms out, and she says, David, Rao, don't worry. I forgive you. I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I was really scared. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you know, like, this girl, as a fundamentalist, would be a ball. <laughs> And she she grabbed me and you know I was kind of like I'm, I'm, I am one of the frozen chosen. This day was even worse. And like said, I kind of like dragged me to a stoop and we sat down on St Mark's Place at a, at, a, at a brownstone and she gave me her testimony and uh, uh, she told me uh, that Jesus had saved her and that Jesus had redeemed her life and and this this wasn't a girlfriend from hell. This was this was a messenger from God. And over the next eight years or so, we'd gone to the same college course, we, we, we'd we even had the same major, so she would call me, and, and I would say 20 times over the next eight years, she would call me and invite me to church. And I always said, no. But she was faithful to do it. Uh, but Jesus had changed her life, and, and, and she wanted me to have the change that she had. And then finally one day, after the latest girlfriend had broken up with me, when i saw this relationship's movement toward marriage, and that's conflict, so I'll break up with her. She called again, and this time I said yes. And in that first service I went to, that very first Sunday, I heard a sermon from the Word of God that undid me. It did. It saw. The Word revealed what was in my heart in a way that 15 years, when I think about that, 15 years, $150 a week for psychotherapy. Oh, I would love to have that mother. <laughs> what, what, what 15 years could not do of secular therapy. Could not touch. In fact, in fact, it did things that one day that psychotherapy isn't designed to do. First, psychotherapy never told me what was really wrong with me, it doesn't have a category for sin. Secular counseling has no category for what's really wrong with us. Secular psychology has no answer for the problem of sin because it doesn't recognize it, won't remember it, that there actually is, as the text says, a creator. Remember your creator. It won't tell you that. It's all about recreating the self. And with no category for sin, it's never going to call you to repentance. And with no repentance, it's never going to offer you grace. My, my, my apologies to those who were psych majors in the room today. But, but but you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But the gospel did. The gospel did. Second, my counseling was always rooted in what was wrong with my past. All secular counseling does is counseling always in the light of, of the beginning. Always in the light of your youth. I don't care if you're a and I studied this. I don't care if you're a Rogierian, I don't care if you're a Freudian. I don't care if you're a Jungian. I don't care if you're an Adlerian. It will ask you. It will go back to your parents, your household of origin, the truths that you were told, the lies that you were told, the genetics, the neurosis of your parents. It sets you. Those things set your life in stone. They set a trajectory for you. And therapy is the art of accepting who you are. That's what it offered. That's what I wanted. I wanted acceptance. In fact, when I lived in New York, because of stuff that I was up to, and those relationships that I mentioned, I chose a female psychotherapist. Because if I could get a woman to look me in the eye and say, I accept you, I knew I can accept myself. Until one day, I told this woman something she looked at me and she just couldn't accept it she was repulsed by what I did this had never happened to me before she had always told me David you're okay but today I could tell she was not okay. suddenly my past was controlling me. Suddenly, everything I did, was, and my behaviors, the things that I was doing as a happy-go-lucky secular white guy in Manhattan taking advantage of all the things that the big city had for me, suddenly all stuck to me. And I couldn't get it off. By God's providence, it was two weeks after that that I was asked to change. That's when I heard that sermon that that girlfriend uh, took me to. Uh, And and in that sermon, I heard, I heard acknowledgement that I was as bad as I was feeling. Strangely enough, I didn't feel accepted. (laughs) God's word said, you're not acceptable. And somehow, in a weird way, I never thought of before, that was kind of good news. It was truthful. Somebody was telling me the truth. And it was God. So I thought, I will listen to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the next moment, in the next moment, I heard about the cross that, that offered me a, a present in the moment, not guilty verdict, and, and it offered me the future home that I've been looking for, a home that was not in this world. That made sense to My friends. God wants us to hunger not for the places and the times and the homes and the, and, and the loves of our youth or even the places of, of, of awakened loves but for the fullness of his eternal love. That's what he wants us to be hungry for. Remember your creator. You are not from your home. You are not from Princeton University. You are not from your parents. You are not from Princeton, Princeton Christian Fellowship as good as this yes. is. You are from God. That's who you are. You faith and put your faith in Christ. You're from Him. In Him, in Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians Ephesians 2.22. This is so important. Everything rolls off of this first word, remember. You can see it in the text. You can see it even better when you kept hearing the word before in the passage. In other words, remember who you are before you get caught up in all the identity finding that the world wants to offer you. Remember your creator before you get caught up in the intoxications of all this world has to offer. Remember who you are, because time is short, and you're getting older. Remember who you are before the world says, you only have so little time to use that body, to use that brain, to use those emotions. And and so you run to those things, and that's when you get trapped. Alistair Begg uh, illustrates it this way. He says, imagine a bank exists, that each day, every morning, credits your account $86,400. But that account carries over no balance from day to day. It's use it or lose it. Every night, whatever you fail to spend from that day is removed from your account. So, what would you do? Well, of course, you would draw out every penny at the end of the day. You'd be faithful to be at that ATM. You'd see how much was left, and you'd suck it out of that machine as fast as you could before it turned midnight, right? The point is. Each of us in this room has a bank like that. It's called time. And every day you're given 86,400 seconds to live. And each night it writes off as lost whatever you have not used to good purpose. And then it's gone. No balance is carried over for you to use later. Um, so that you know, when you you say oh, I'll do that, I'll investigate Christ, I'll investigate the gospel, I'll I'll give my body only to one person when life gets serious, that's what I'll do. Now. But you don't get any overdraft privileges. Each night, the account of time burns the remains of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, it's your loss. That's what the wise man, that's what the preacher is saying. You have just this moment. Don't get tangled up in your past. And do not worry about the future. The Lord will provide whatever deposit that he desires for you to have every day. You know, Solomon, the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, this king, he lived his life in light of the end, in light of death. He knew he was wise enough to know that he has one foot in the grave as he writes this. And, you know, all of our technology, all of our modern wisdom, just this week a primate was cloned, CRISPR technology, the baby will help some of us live longer. But all of these centuries later, and, 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 and you know, the death rate is exactly the same as it ever was. Yeah. One death per person. <laughs> That's where it ends for everyone in this room. And he tells you now, even as a king who can control more variables in his life than you ever could, how living life, only in light of death, how much of life he got wrong. Brothers and sisters, you have so much more than the king of Israel had. You have so much more than Solomon had. You can live your life in the light of the king. You can live life not in the shadowlands, but in the light of the real and the true man, the God man, the king, who got all of life right. Who never made idols as Solomon did, of wealth, of beauty, of power, of wisdom, even of law. And yet with one foot in his grave, Jesus lived his life for me. For you. He's the one person in all of human history who knew where he was from and where he was going. He said, I'm not of this world, yet he said, I am the light of the world. He said, his kingdom is not of this world, and yet he loves you and this world so much that he came to die for the world. To make you a part of his kingdom. My call to you tonight is to give your life to him now before you become so intoxicated, so addicted to the world that you can't remember your Creator. That's what Solomon said. If you've done what I've done, you will get so... If the Lord, just by his common grace, allows you, and the people in this room, are the smart people. If, he, if the Lord, by his common grace, allows you to have the success that Princeton graduates have, that's a dangerous place. Because you can become so intoxicated by being in the upper halls of culture. But you won't remember your creative vision and think, I did this. I created this. Now, the ugly jacket should tell you that it didn't. But anyway. <laughs> now, some of you, and the answer, some of you I know are, are on the edge. Right? You don't, you don't want to be a Christian yet, even though you hear Jesus calling you. You're saying to yourself, I want to enjoy all the pleasures of life. When I've gotten all of that out of my system, then I'm going to give my heart to Jesus Christ. I promise I will Then, Are you going to offer your life to God like that? Is that your plan? Is your plan to give your life to God when you're all banged up, when your heart's all smashed up, when your life is all worn out, that's what you're going to do. Is that your plan? This God, your creator, who thought so much of you that he would send his son to die for you, to become your eternal friend, to become your guide, to become your Lord, to become your master, to call you by name, do not do that. Do not do that. Remember your creator now. Time is sure. Time is sure. This is it. When you have all your see. when you have all your passions, when you have, have, have these years when you should be deciding, is God real? When you have these years when you, you have to decide, did Christ die for you? when you're making these decisions about is this the life that I should live under Christ as my Lord, this is a serious time it's a very serious time. these years are not a dress rehearsal, this is it this is it so beware of allowing the best years of your life to pass you while you're waiting for them to begin Give your life to Jesus Christ. Friends, the Bible could not be clear about this. You were made for a home that is bigger than this world and he has a name and his name is Jesus and he's the only thing that will satisfy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you sent Jesus all the way down to us because you knew we couldn't climb up to you. None of us in this room with all the wisdom in this world on this side of heaven could ever climb up to you. None of us could get back to what you have always designed for us as home. Lord, you put eternity in our hearts so that when we hear the call of Christ today, Today is the day that we might respond to that call, receive, and go home so that wherever we are in this world, if one of us becomes a missionary in world, if, if one of us goes to, 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 to the halls of power in Washington, if one of us becomes a, an ambassador to China, if one of us works in a, in a street preaching um, uh, organization, if, if, one of us, if, if one of us leads PCF. There is nowhere in this world we can go and not be home with you. That's what we long for, Father, we're so busy with the things of this world, the good things of this world. We've made so many good things, the best thing, and we use those things to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and we sometimes kid ourselves between, between large group meetings like this that, that you are not even there, so we can do what we do, and then we give you a day a week, and one day we'll really commit on sin. No one of us here knows what tomorrow brings. Today's is the day. Lord, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts that we might receive you and go home. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.